Welcome to Finlos Reads. In this episode, we're going to hear from my good friend Naeem, who inspired the prior episode of this show and the discussion of Stephen King's The Gunslinger. He and I had a conversation on his thoughts and reactions to the first volume of the Dark Tower series. After that, I will review Snow, Glass, Apples, a graphic novel written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Colleen Doran. Just as a warning, the conversation about the gunslinger does discuss the entirety of the plot of the book, and so there will be spoilers if you've never read it before. What'd you think of the book? Man, so I um I I really so so I, I enjoyed it. The the beginning was was very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um I think intentionally, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I I don't get scared by that. Um, obviously, authors are going to give you a little bit of mystery. Um, if if they're good and they're good about it, they'll give you mystery in the beginning, um, and let it unfold in the rest of the book. Yeah. So I knew that. I knew that this was just the first book of many, mm-hmm. and after reading. I think there's an introduction and there's a forward and and in one of them he talked about um you know that this this first book is really just a first you know basically a first chapter right into to this long saga that that he intended to write so um so so although it it did start slow and it did start very confusing and I really didn't know what was going on uh, I mean by the end the, the pace had picked up considerably I mean they're they're running through uh caves they're they're shooting guns they're you know um uh really getting after each other so mm-hmm. you know it, it was it was a, a long uh journey uh both physically and pacing wise i think yeah structurally um what i what i really love about this first book um i mean just to continue our conversation like with star wars stuff um i think it does extremely well what the, the a new hope like the original Star Wars movie why why that one is my favorite of all the Star Wars movies like I don't think it's the best but it's my favorite just from a writing standpoint because it is just laser beam focused you know it, it, it's it the cast of characters is extremely limited the plot is very very tense and focused and there's no empty space like there's no fluff anywhere and I really enjoy that from from just a narrative perspective and. I, I really enjoy that about um, about this the gunslinger because like it just drops you right into it. It expects you to be able to the Stephen King expects you to be able to keep up or at least be willing to to put up with it for a while. But it's it's a relentless story, and even when the so, and, and so there's never more than two or three active characters at any given time with I, which I just think is 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 really cool. But then to get to the ending and then. When when Roland wakes up, there's the it's no longer like just this one book, and he he you see the 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 shore of the and and the the ocean like extending into the distance, and you realize oh man, there's more. Like I just that's just a really cool um, narrative thing because because he stays so focused in this book that you're it's almost like a misdirection. Like this this is gonna happen. They're gonna they're gonna Roland's gonna catch the man in black. They're gonna fight, and then it's gonna be over. Um, like a showdown, I know, and, and 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 what what a I mean, it wasn't really a letdown. It was just sort of like a it was a twist. I mean, yeah, for sure. 
you know, you think this is this is the ultimate villain that he's going after. You yeah. still don't understand what the hell a tower is. You nope. still don't understand what the connection, nope. you know, between this man and the tower is. Um, and then when he meets him, this man is nothing more than apparently a messenger. Um, you know. Yeah, what you said about about the characters too that, that that's true. There really isn't that many. I mean, the first character he meets is the uh, the, the 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 dweller in his hut, and, and then the one part of the book that has a couple characters at the same time is when he goes into the town. Well, he's retelling a story because it's a flashback. Right before before he gets to to, to the hut, he went into town to Tull, um, and, he, to meet, tull, and, and he meets the the girl. Yeah, he had this, you know, brief relationship with this girl who, you know, sure, you know, at first it, it was to him, I guess maybe it appeared to him that it was just a sexual relationship. Right. But then in the rest of the book, he's always thinking about her and, and reminiscing and, you know, mm-hmm. about her and, and some other person, some other woman that we yeah. don't really know too much about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, um, there's a, there's a connection there. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think that that actually, um, that whole section in Tull reveals, I think, honestly, and this is this is this is going to be a consistent thing if you do decide to continue. Um, but a consistent weakness of Stephen King is his inability to to not inability, his limited ability to portray um, characters without explicitly like labeling them by physical quality. So, mm. um, you know, so the, the, what was her name in Tull? Is it Annie? I think is her name. I think so. Yeah. And he described like, like some scar on her face. Yeah. And, she would be pretty um, if she wasn't so run down, like, like something like that. Like, Ooh. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the, the preach, the preacher lady is, you know, obscenely fat, but yet entirely like uh, uh, irresistible sexually. It's just all yeah. very, very, those are not, I think Stephen King's best. Uh, qualities as a writer um, no you know and and, and so i i was i was thinking about this because because there's another author that, that i told you about um who is probably almost at as or maybe more prolific as far as the amount that he puts out mm-hmm. um which is probably a lot of co-authored stuff so i don't know if he's necessarily you yeah. know writing as much as stephen king but james patterson mm-hmm. I, I listened to an audiobook and I was really, I was really put off mm-hmm. by his descriptions. You know, every female character was described exactly as you said, but you know, to to sort of a nauseating degree. Right. Like, you know, here's his character. Her description must include her attractiveness on right. a scale of whatever. Right. Um, and then you know, he may get to other attributes, you know, about personality or or intelligence or mm-hmm. whatever, but. Uh, it's always led by attractiveness, um, and, and also, and also, introducing characters who are not white mm-hmm. by their color, mm-hmm. and introducing characters who are white by everything else but the race. Right. Um, uh, in this book, I don't think he described the race of um, of the gunslinger. Not in the first book. Uh, in the second book, okay. in the second book, you get explicit descriptions. Um, oh, okay. okay. And and the in one of the introductions, I don't maybe it was the the first edition of the novel or or just later ver- later editions of the, of the different novels. He was like 
carbon copy of Clint Eastwood from the Spaghetti Westerns. Um, yeah, I mean, in in the introduction or forward or whatever it was, I mean, he he talked about, um, you know, he wanted to write an epic travel um, series of books, and he waited um, because I guess at the time that that Lord of the Rings had come out, I mean, there were authors who were, you know, copying the style and creating their own epic travel adventure novels. Um, and he, he guess you know, and he says he was egotistical and he wanted to, to, to separate, you know, himself from what everyone else was doing. So he, he waited uh, until he saw, um, you know, spaghetti Westerns, and I think specifically the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and, and that sort of, uh, I, I guess, you know, setting for, for, for his book, but not just the setting, but the tone, right? Because, I mean, there are Westerns that are, are goofy as hell, but they're set, you know, in the same time period. Yeah, there's, still I mean, a, there's an aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, it, it really came through. I mean, maybe because he, did, he, he I knew what he was going for, so I was looking for the similarities, but, um, I mean, just, just the description of, of the desert and the heat and the desolation and the desperation of someone traveling through it, um, I mean, I remember from that movie, you know, the, the parts where Clint Eastwood, you know, gets dragged through the desert and, and is thirsty and his face is ruined by, um, by thirst and his lips are all cracked. I mean, you know, I, I think in, in his description of, uh, of Roland, I mean, you know, that, that came through, especially when he made it to the hut and he just barely made it in right. and collapsed in front of the boy. I mean, oh. that, that's that's what I can imagine, you know, for sure. And I think up to that point, I think it, it's, it's 100% intended to be that, that sort of template, that archetype of the silent gunslinger, uh, like Western character. He gets fleshed out a lot more. Um, and once he meets Jake and then in further books, like the Roland actually gets a, a lot of depth and he's doing, he's actually doing something very similar to what Tolkien was doing. Uh, with Lord of the Rings, where he wants to kind of create his own um, mythology. So Stephen King is kind of, he is borrowing sort of like the best elements of all of these different um, American mythologies. So there's, you know, there, there's elements from The Wizard of Oz, there's elements from the Spaghetti Westerns, there's elements from like The Godfather. It, he's really kind of trying to, um, he's definitely trying to create this sort of his own version of that, of that story. Uh, the walking yeah. man, the walking man with this very specific goal down the road. But yeah, I think once we get Jake into the story, Roland's demeanor completely changes, and I think it's just a really interesting aspect to the story. And but but I think Jake Jake really changes things for Roland. The the, the tone shift for sure was there, and, and it was intentional, and mm -hmm. there was a lot you know about that. Um, you know, all of a sudden. It, it, it wasn't as if he had, you know, a, a love interest, right, who who earlier had, had gone crazy or was possessed and turned on him, who mm -hmm. he had to kill. Mm -hmm. um, he had he had a child. Right. I mean, a boy, a, a helpless boy who was there, whose presence was was quite obviously uh, the result of the man in black. Right. I mean, I think he knew that right away that this boy was put here by by him and put there as as something as a trap or a way to slow him down or a way um 
I think he foreshadowed a choice he would have to make. And, and even the boy realized at some point that he would be, um, you know, a, a, a sacrifice. Um, but despite knowing that, you know, you, you saw him soften over time. Um, and I don't think he felt bad. About it. I mean, I think he was conflicted about it, but I don't think he felt really like super strongly like, like it was making him a weaker or worse person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, starting out with the tragic story of the boy right away um, and, and figuring out that the boy was, was dead or revived or transported there somehow. That, or frozen yeah, and, in time. And, and I think you even mentioned like the description of him getting run over. That's a pretty intense graphic, graphic. description. Yeah, it's very graphic. It, it was extremely graphic. Yeah. And, the boy asked not to remember it, yeah. which, you know, I think is, is a, a good logical choice for anybody. You know, if you have the choice of forgetting something so horrible. Um, so, so he starts off with that, you know, you immediately sympathize with the boy, um, you know, and, and I think anybody would sympathize and want to care for others. But I mean, you know, and, and I hate to say this because I, I hated when parents would say this when I, I didn't have kids, but I mean, having a kid really, changes the way you feel about children yep. and, and seeing children and knowing really how helpless children are. Mm-hmm. So seeing, seeing a boy with, with no one to care for him out in the middle of the desert is, is going to, you know, uh, is going to tug at heartstrings. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, it, it was an easy, you know, sympathetic character for anybody, but I mean, I think especially for parents, you know, yep. seeing a helpless child, you know, is, is going to make them obviously really feel for that character. He can create such a a well rounded, believable character, and even in that moment when we were when we were talking about when when he drops Jake on the from the bridge, and Jake says just that killer last line like there are other worlds than this. It's like, and you know he's gonna do it, and you hate yeah. you hate him for it, but you still like there was never any choice. Like this was never not gonna happen, right? And, and so that whole but 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 you. But up until that point, you were sort of hoping, you were and, hoping. and you were you were given hope. You were given. I mean, you know, so so it wasn't as if, um, it was still a surprise. Let me put it that way. I mean, it, like afterwards, you're like, okay, yeah, it was going to happen. But like, it, it was still a good buildup of tension Absolutely. up that, to the moment. And that's what it is. Is is because up to that point, there are several occasions when, when Roland, could have not done stuff like when. When um when Jake gets attacked by the by the demon, and and Roland really puts himself at risk to save to save Jake, um, yeah. And there are, and then when they go into the like there are gen there are genuine moments when Roland goes out of his way to care for this for this child. Like he obviously well so, so yeah because even in you're right because in the in the sequence of events before he gets dropped off the bridge you're going I mean in the train ride right. through the tunnel. They get attacked by the mutants. Right. And at several points, you know, Roland could have just left him there yep. to the mutants. And, you know, obviously that would have been horrible, but I mean, he risked his life to save the boy when he could have saved his, his life very easily. And because mutants were slow moving. Yeah. The slow muties. He, he could have, he could have gone on, but he saved him. And then they get to the, the station and, you know, they sort of, that, that's what, confused me even more because like well is this 
our world or someone else's world because Ooh, these yeah. people, you know mm-hmm. these people you know this is this is a fossilized train station um you know it's it's been there for so long that you know they touch a newspaper and it turns into dust you know and there's skeletons everywhere but but there's one part in there that was kind of funny because as a parent everyone does this your kid doesn't want to leave somewhere and you're like all right bye and you start walking <laughs> away and you know they're gonna follow you yep and he does that with him so it's kind of funny but also it was it was also sort of shrouded in you know this this sort of despair because the kid knew something bad was coming and knew that Roland would have to make a choice it's like the closer um, the closer the closer you get to the moment the more uh ill at ease Jake becomes like he senses it coming right and, right. but and he, it, but he follows him anyways. I mean, of well, does. what else was he going to do? Stay right. stay in a station and right. starve? I mean, right. you know, he had to go. Yeah, but... and and that says something about Jake's character. Um, and it also says like it's 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 a bizarre sort of um tension to hold because you know it's going to happen, but yet Roland seems to be fighting it, and it's only when it becomes like a binary choice. It's like save the boy, lose the tower or drop the boy and potentially see the tower. Like that's it. It's just a binary choice. The ending is, I honestly think is the weakest is the weakest part. Um, It's a really powerful moment. Uh, And I'm not, I'm not saying that that what happens is weak. I'm just saying how the book ends is sort of weak because it's like, he's like, okay, I reached the end of this chapter. I've got like 300 pages. Uh, I'm just going to stop here. And yeah, yeah. He was basically like, ah, I've read enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's Stephen King does that. That's actually his thing. And he if you ever read his book about writing, like that's he he opens like I I suck at writing endings. But um mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's cool. I really enjoy it. I'm glad that you're reading it. And more than anything, it's just cool to talk about it with somebody. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I I'm in I mean, I don't understand everything, but I I, I want him to explain things because I, I know they're going to be interesting. Okay, so before I begin, a little disclaimer. I'm a really big Neil Gaiman fan. So keep that in mind as I go into this, because that's obviously going to be a little bit of a bias for me. But that doesn't make everything that he writes perfect. This story, Snow, Glass, Apples, I first read it in the collection Smoke and Mirrors, which is a collection of short stories by Neil Gaiman, which was published in 1998. Uh, And honestly, I didn't really remember it until I read the graphic novel. I think that when you have authors who are fairly well established, like Neil Gaiman, who has won numerous awards, his works have been adapted into all sorts of media from comics and graphic novels to films, you have a certain level of freedom to really do what you'd like to do. But at the same time, there's an expectation that all of the work that you produce comes out amazing, that you are top tier. What's cool about short story collections, um, they're often a lot more experimental, uh, a lot more niche, 
um, and they sometimes deal with topics that might not be uh, as popular with mainstream audiences. Uh, and Smoke and Mirrors is no different. So the original Snow, Glass, and Apples was published in that collection of short stories. This uh, adaptation, this graphic novel, illustrated and adapted by Colleen Doran, captures the essence of that short story and streamlines it. Most of the details are intact and are done so largely through the illustrations so that the text that is there directly lifted from the short story is sparse but serves to support and give structure to the stunning artwork that is present in this book. Having some knowledge of the Grimm's fairy tale version of Snow White and the Seven Doors is essential for really, I think, getting the most value out of this work. It really is leaning on the, the assumption that the reader will not only have seen the Disney version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but will have been exposed in some form to the Grimm's fairy tale version as well. And it's really important because it is leaning on that foreknowledge, specifically with aspects of the background of the two main characters, Snow White and the Queen. And of course, traditionally, we view Snow White as the the protagonist and victim of the antagonist, the evil queen who is seeking to consume Snow White's heart to both get rid of a challenger of beauty, but also to achieve immortality. The witch is portrayed as an evil witch um, who is able to do magical feats. So in this version of the story, Neil Gaiman has sort of swap the roles of these characters to making so the queen is a witch but one who uses traditional folk magic and snow white instead is the villain of the story and this is something that we see more commonly done now especially with recent disney works like maleficent but it's an it is important to see that gaiman was doing this uh in the late 90s it's really cool to see how his storytelling has had an impact in that way. The story itself is interesting. Um, again, it's a reversal of the traditional Snow White narrative, which is interesting in and of itself. It really leans into um, some dark territory. There are elements which are definitely gory and macabre, and the artwork definitely captures that brilliantly. I think the the artwork in this book is absolutely stunning. Doran uses vibrant colors uh, and very much an art deco style to create a sense of magic, but one that is not outside the realm of natural form, if that makes sense. The people are illustrated in fairly normal proportions beyond their obvious beauty. Uh, beyond normal standards, but the art style itself is clean and vibrant. Um, my favorite page spread uh, is in the first part of the book. On one page, you have an illustration showing the main character who has been recently wed to the king. They are both drawn uh, with 
these um, intersecting lines and the colors are very cool and it is it is highlighting the sadness present in that scene but on the next page the opposite page the the lines are are curving and they're more organic in nature and the colors are warm and vibrant so it's a really interesting juxtaposition of the these two pages where it really highlights the strength of art for this artist uh, prior to this book i was not familiar with colleen doran but she is a prominent illustrator and artist and I definitely will look into other works that she has done. Um, overall, I think that the book is an enjoyable read. It is a brief read. Um, it's a one-volume graphic novel in hardback that is published by Dark Horse Comics, and the presentation is absolutely beautiful. I think it is worth it for the art alone, but it is definitely buoyed by uh, Neil Gaiman's typical uh, fantastical writing style emphasizing things that make us very uncomfortable. There are scenes that are gory. There are scenes that are um, on the edge of erotic. And it is interesting to see how those elements can surprise and upend our traditional notions of what this fairy tale and this folktale um, have become in, you know, pop culture. So again, that sort of challenge to how we anticipate seeing these traditional stories told, I think is worthy of study if, if for nothing else. A treat that the book contains is um, the artist, Colleen Doran, includes um, some pages towards the end of the book where she talks about her process of creating the artwork and adapting the book. And it, it provides some studies that she did throughout the process. And so that makes for a really interesting read as well. I always enjoy getting an idea of the artistic process that different people go through. I hope this review has been helpful. Uh, again, the book is called Snow Glass Apples. I don't like the title. I think it's kind of an awkward thing to say, but that's what it is. Uh, don't let the title stop you. It is a beautifully rendered work uh, in terms of its art style, and it features classic strong writing from Neil Gaiman. If you're a fan of of either of these either of these people, either Neil Gaiman or Colleen Doran, I think it's a worthy addition to your library. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me again.